Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn whether cockroaches really can survive a nuclear apocalypse and how to change behaviors using a subtle suggestion. But first, you'll learn what it means when you have something in your genes with help from award-winning author Carl Zimmer. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Last month, Cody and I recorded a couple live podcasts at the annual meeting for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS. And we got this super cool chance to interview one of my favorite science writers, Carl Zimmer. He's a columnist for the New York Times and author of the best-selling new book called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. I've read the book, and it's awesome. And the thing is, it turns out that what our genes tell us about ourselves is really complicated. Right. For instance, let's say you've got someone with no history of any autoimmune disease anywhere in his extended family. And yet, he gets diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Where'd that come from? Shouldn't those traits have come from somewhere? Well, I asked Carl about this, partly because, well, that kind of happened to me. And here's what he said to help us understand what it means when something is, quote-unquote, in our genes a little bit better. The connection between our genes and diseases is still a work in progress. So what the genetic influence might have been that led to you getting type 1 diabetes and your relatives not is really kind of an open question. What scientists can do now is they can look at like thousands of people who develop type 1 diabetes and then compare them to hundreds of thousands of people who haven't and try to find if there are any genes that are more common in the the diabetics than not. But a lot of times what happens with diseases is like, oh, I found a gene that's strongly associated uh, with this disease. But when you say strongly associated, that only means that, you know, it ha- it's going to raise your risk a tiny amount. And also, you know, sometimes, sometimes genes, uh, this is actually true, it seems to be true with autism in particular, is that there is a strong genetic component to autism. However, these mutations that are being associated with autism, they tend to be mutations that we, people do not inherit. They're mutations that pop up in a person for the first time, wow. de novo mutations, which like makes it even more complicated. Is, is there anything simple about this? <laughs> Why should there be? I mean, it's life, you know? It's, yeah. it's cool. And, and it's always a peril with science writing. Like, you, you don't want your, your nut graph to be, it's complicated. <laughs> I mean, you want to sort of, like, get people excited about just how cool the complexity is. Like, in the way that you walk into a rainforest, you know, it's, a rainforest is not simple, but it's pretty cool. So is there anything that that science education is getting wrong right now? Because I'm not a genetics expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember 6th and 7th grade doing those tables where you've got the blue eyes, the brown eyes. Is that wrong? So that science is still right. So where's the disconnect? It's kind of like saying, like, okay, we're all going to build rocket ships and try to get them into orbit, and we've learned arithmetic. It's like, okay, great, great place to start, but we got to move on to calculus here, you know? (laughs) So, like, Mendel and Punnett squares, that's a great place to start, but that is a terrible place to stop. (laughs) Nobody then said, like, oh, by the way, you know, these genes that Mendel found, like, they only are a very small part of the story. Like, how tall you are is actually very strongly influenced by, by genes, and I write about this in the book. It's totally clear that it's a very heritable trait. But it's not like there's some Mendel gene, like you're either tall or you're short. Then that's it. Like, that's not how we humans work. There are actually 
there have been, I think, of almost 4,000 genes now that have been identified that influence your height in one way or the other. And so if we're going to try to make sense of, of these 23andMe reports and so on and start making decisions about CRISPR and things, like we, we have to get beyond the, the Mendel stage of, of our understanding. We'll put links to Carl Zimmer's new book, his podcast, and other resources in today's show notes. You can also hear our full interview on the latest episode of the Curiosity Podcast, which you can find on our Patreon page. Just visit patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. You've probably heard that cockroaches can survive a nuclear explosion. Have you heard this, Ashley? Of course. Right. Well, if you look into the facts, I hate to break it to you, but that's not really true. And that's according to a Nobel laureate named Tillman Ruff. He's a professor in the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne, and he happens to study the health and environmental consequences of nuclear explosions. As reported by Futurity, he says that in all his research, he's never come across documented evidence that cockroaches were crawling around a nuclear fallout. He's not the first person to bust this myth, either. In 2012, the TV series Mythbusters exposed cockroaches to radiation to see what would happen. They survived longer than humans would have, but they still died when they were faced with extreme levels of radiation. That test did not look at how radiation would affect a cockroach's ability to lay eggs, though. I'll get to that in a second. Now, there are more than 4,000 species of cockroaches, but in general, they're fast breeders and they lay lots of eggs that are hard to kill with chemicals. Not to mention they can slide into hard-to-get places since they're basically flat. So, yeah, they're pretty tough to get rid of. But as living creatures, they've still got to eat. And since they eat the waste of other living organisms, they might have a hard time surviving if humans and other animals are wiped out. They'd be able to eat bodies and other decaying materials for a while, sure, but eventually, in a human-free, post-apocalyptic wasteland, even cockroaches will run out of food. Add all that to the dozens of other large-scale effects of a nuclear fallout, like chronic exposure and genetic effects across generations, and the writing is on the wall. Even cockroaches wouldn't survive a nuclear apocalypse. Does this upset you, Ashley? No, I feel like that makes them a little bit more like us, and I think they're a little bit more personable now. It's our goal, humanize cockroaches. I mean, yeah, they're animals too. They are. Horrific. <laughs> Disgusting, <laughs> nightmarish. Hey, some people keep them as pets. There are more than 4,000 species, Cody. You said it yourself. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> if you need help convincing someone to do something, then you've come to the right place. There's a thing called nudge theory that works so well, it helped Richard Thaler win a Nobel Prize in 2017. He's a leading academic in the field of behavioral economics. And to be honest, you've probably heard him before if you listen to a lot of other podcasts. His ideas are kind of everywhere. In case you missed it, though, here's a quick primer on nudge theory to help you get people to do something. It's different because most economic theories pretend that people make choices based on rational self-interest. But nudge theory works based on the idea that most of us make decisions on autopilot or based on external factors we're not aware of. Basically, it realizes that humans are not always rational. Shocking, I know. The basic idea is that making an indirect suggestion will get you better results when you're dealing with people who could just say, no thanks. You've probably used nudge theory on yourself. Have you ever set your clock ahead to avoid being late? Have you bought fun-sized snacks instead of a huge bag to avoid overindulging? 
Or have you set up your bank account to automatically deposit part of your paycheck into savings? These are all ways to nudge you toward making a responsible or healthy decision. And this works on a large scale level too. Take Spain, for example. Citizens are automatically registered for organ donation in Spain unless they choose to opt out. And that's why the country is the world's number one source for organ transplants worldwide. Supermarkets have seen fruit and vegetable sales skyrocket just by placing arrows on the ground, leading shoppers to them. On the flip side, a cashier asking if you want to supersize your meal ends up with most customers saying yes without even thinking about it. Knowing that you make a lot of decisions on autopilot can help you set yourself up for good decision making. If you're trying to start a good habit, set up your day so that sticking to those behaviors is your easiest option and you're more likely to succeed. Read about today's stories and more on Curiosity.com. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.